This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll try to catch up on all the news about Putin and Donald Trump Jr. We'll speak with Joan Walsh about that. We'll also talk about Trump's voting commission with Ari Berman, because if the Democrats are going to retake the House in November 2018, they're going to need to be able to vote. First up today, Al Franken, senator from Minnesota. Al Franken ran for the Senate for the first time in 2008. He won by 312 votes after a recount that lasted eight months. Now he's a member of the Judiciary Committee, and of course he played a key role in exposing the lies of Attorney General Jeff Sessions about his contacts with Russians during the campaign. Today we want to talk about a new book. It's already a number one bestseller. It's called Al Franken, Giant of the Senate. The author is Al Franken. One note, in Minnesota, the Democratic Party is called the DFL, the Democratic Farmer Labor Party. We spoke with Senator Franken over the weekend. Al Franken, we talked in 2003 about your book, Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them. It was a number one bestseller. In that interview, you were really funny. You were hilarious. But then around 2008, you just stopped being funny. What what happened? Was it problems at home, or what went wrong? Uh, when I really stopped being funny was during the recount. <laughs> <laughs> That's when I completely lost my sense of humor. No, I was running for office, and uh, I I thought that uh, comedy would be an asset. My career would have been an asset, but uh, Republicans right away just started putting everything I'd ever written or said uh, through this fifteen million dollar machine. Uh, called the dehumorizer, and it had been built with advanced Israeli technology <laughs> to take uh, all the irony and context that uh, any hyperbole and just suck it out and leave you with something offensive. <laughs> and so I learned that uh, it, it became very clear very early in that race that uh, uh, humor wasn't going to be the thing that you know that I that you can't litigate comedy, and so I had to sort of say, okay, this is what I'm, this is why I'm running, and and let people know that I was serious about about serving in the Senate and serving the people of Minnesota, and it, and it worked barely, but uh, it worked. Know, uh, Norm Coleman, opponent, had uh, been mayor of St. Paul and had run for governor and had lost to Jesse Ventura, so he's lost now to a. Um, 
a professional wrestler and a comedian. <laughs> and, and Norm Coleman, how's he doing these days? Uh, yeah, people worry about him. Some people, you know, I beat him and uh, people worry, but he's landed on his feet. He uh, now continues to serve the people of Minnesota as a, um, a paid lobbyist for the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. <laughs> Norm Coleman, I, is, I have a pet peeve about Norm Coleman because he started out as a anti-war student radical in the Vietnam era. Yeah, he was, he was, he was SDS. Yeah. Then he became a Democrat, a DFLer. Right, and uh, he was mayor of, of St. Paul as a DFLer, and then he switched in the middle and became Republican. And, uh, you know, people changed their views. People should be able to do that. <laughs> and and uh, I'm not sure if it was because there was no road dyer office as a DFLer at, the point, at that point or not, but he became Republican, and he did lose uh, in a three-way race to uh, – uh, Jesse Ventura, and so he's lost to a comedian and a professional wrestler, and I'm uh, hoping that he runs one more time and loses to a, a human cannonball. Okay. Well, I got the impression from your book that you don't like Ted Cruz very much. Well, I use uh, in the book I talk about how much I do work with my Republican colleagues and how much I do. Uh, like uh, a number of them, and but Ted is, I write a chapter on Ted because he's kind of the exception uh, to the rule, which is that the rule is that to get things done in, in the Senate, you have to be collegial, and Ted's kind of a toxic co-worker. He's kind of the guy who microwaves fish in the lunchroom. Um, but uh, so I do write a chapter about him, and uh, uh, it's 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 completely fair. I, I I say at the beginning as one thing you should uh, know about Ted Cruz is that I like Ted Cruz probably more than most of my colleagues like Ted Cruz, and I hate Ted Cruz. <laughs> and and then I I explain why. What do you think about a political party whose final two candidates for the nomination are Ted Cruz and Donald Trump? It's you know that's. It is interesting that they were the two final standing, sort of. I mean, Kasich was in there, too, but he didn't have a chance, and there's no doubt that uh, Ted was uh, second. And the fact that the establishment Republicans didn't get behind Ted says a lot about who, who he is as a, you know, as a person. As I recall, uh, there was only one senator who uh, got, got behind Donald Trump. Uh, well, Sessions did. I mean, yeah. Sessions did early, and he's attorney general now. And we had one who got behind uh, Ted Cruz, which was Mike Lee. Mm -hmm. And so neither of them were t terribly popular. And I, and I think the Trump voters liked that. They weren't popular mm -hmm. with establishment uh, Republicans. I think they were – I think Trump voters are mad both at uh, – they're just mad at government, big government and uh, – think basically there's no difference between Republicans and Democrats. There's huge differences, but they didn't. And they looked at big government as a self-serving uh, entity that has no interest in their lives. And, you know, I understand how they they feel. I think they're wrong. Uh, but uh, th there are aspects of the way things work in Washington that they're right about that. That uh, and very often it can be that these big corporate interests, um, uh, you know, capture 
regulatory agencies, and so they're they're that's why the Bernie people and the uh, and the and the Trump people very often people voted for Bernie and the primaries voted for Trump. Very often, I think so, and and or, or somewhat often. I do think so. And um, well, Bernie. A lot of people voted for me in 2014 in Minnesota and voted for Trump in 2016. Yeah, I want to talk about this because um, Bernie won the DFL caucus quite by quite a bit. What what did he get? He got uh, 62 62 percent. You were not a Bernie supporter. How do you? Let's talk a little bit more about the Bernie supporters in 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 Minnesota during the primary. Well, there wasn't a primary. There was well, I mean the caucus, in the caucus. Well, there's a big difference. There's no perfect way to do all of this. There just isn't. But I think that the primaries make sense after the Iowa caucus. I think then the rest of the system should be primaries. There's a reason to have a caucus, which is that, you know, if you just have primaries, if you just have a primary at the beginning, whoever has the most money can get on, on the air. But the Iowa caucus is you get the people – everybody in Iowa who cares about this expects to meet all the <laughs> the candidates at least, you know, and, and candidates should come in and fold your laundry and, and stuff <laughs> like that so that you get to know them. You, um, you are a trained lie spotter. I am. <laughs> I am. That's, that's what I – part of what I do. And I kind of – it was self-taught. Would it be fair – to call Jeff Sessions a lying little weasel? I think that would be, um, you know, I don't think I, I would say that. Uh, well, if, if you Google Jeff Sessions and lying little weasel, you get 30 million results. Yeah, but that doesn't mean it's, it's – it, it, uh, that's not how I would characterize the Attorney General of the United States. I do think that he uh, answered one of my questions – um, by not answering it, and said, since I asked him if it turned out that uh, members of the Trump campaign had continuous had continuous communications with Russians during the campaign, um, what would he do? Meaning, would he recuse himself? And he said, I haven't had uh, I had no connections or communications with the Russians. So, the campaign, so, and he did, and he did, and. This is a lie. It's a lie under oath. Lying under oath to Congress, this this is a crime. People have gone to jail for lying under oath to Congress. Yeah, and I would like him – his written responses to why he answered the way he did were not at all satisfactory. And uh, his, his, his opening statement uh, at the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee's uh, hearing where he testified was not, it was very unsatisfactory to me. I want him to come before the committee again, and he is <laughs> he is the uh, head of the Justice Department. We're the Judiciary Committee. We have oversight over the over the Justice Department. He should be appearing before us, and uh, I, I will. You know, there are there sometimes people give false testimony. Um, for a reason other than that they're lying. Um, and so that's what, you know, I, I, I have not been satisfied with his, uh, I think his answers about why he answered the way he did and char- his characterization of it have also been uh, inaccurate and false. So uh, it, it, he's, he's in a deep hole as far as I'm concerned. 
And the result of your questioning of Jeff Sessions was that we got Robert Mueller, special counsel, uh, investigating many things. And we want to give you credit for the prosecutorial brilliance of, of your questioning here. Well, again, it's weird because I asked he, – he answered a question I didn't ask, but a lot of people – uh, kind of give me credit for like that Franken. He's clearly playing three-dimensional chess and his four moves ahead of everybody else. That was brilliant. And and that wasn't really I, – I didn't try to trap him. It wasn't a gotcha question. It was simply, would you recuse yourself if it turns out? And instead of answering that question, he said, I didn't meet with the Russians. And when it turned out, he did. Uh, about seven weeks later in the Washington Post, and the fact that he didn't correct that in the seven weeks was damning, and that's when he recused himself. So, you know, uh, and then when he recused himself, uh, uh, Rosenstein became the effective head of that, and uh, and uh, they fired uh, Comey, and because Comey was fired, they got a special prosecutor. And so... You're welcome. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what you started in Lies and, and the Lying Liars was you, you had a team of researchers check the claims made by Fox News, by people like Bill O'Reilly, and show that they were wrong. This has now become a full-time industry of the uh, mainstream media. The New York Times ran that whole page showing that Trump had lied uh, every day. Uh, but as a trained lie spotter, uh, you would you would die of overwork if you devoted those talents to um, to all the lies Donald Trump tells. W- what do you make of of Trump's lying and of the fact that his his supporters don't seem to mind it when people like you uh, show that uh, these are lies? Yeah, well, I I don't really bother too much with that anymore. I mean, I think it's kind of adorable that I made a living pointing out that people were lying that, that uh, about right wing lies. It does, you're right; it doesn't matter anymore. And I think that uh, you know, people in the United States now uh, are self sorted and kind of live in communities where people think like they do. And they get their information. I mean, Rush Limbaugh's big fat idiot and other observations is about talk radio to a great degree. And Lies and Lying Liars, you tell them a fair and balanced look at the right, was about Fox. And it was about other Republicans who who lie. Um, People get their information from the sources that confirm their own bias. And um, so a lot of people just... Either they, you know, the, a lot of his supporters would say, like, um, uh, you know, don't take what he says literally, you know, um, you know, you just got to understand what he's basically saying and uh, take him seriously, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so there was that excuse about lying, but I think there's also other people who literally buy this fake news thing, which is ironic because the fake news first came, became a term because of what the Russians essentially were doing. This is putting, feeding this fake news after they had hacked us and uh, weaving these uh, fake narratives, the pizza uh, parlor where John Podesta and Hillary Clinton had a a pedophile ring. So I, I do think that a lot of people get their um, 
their information from places that they choose to get their information from. So it's it's a much much harder to break through to correct things that are false these days. Some of my friends think even if everything we suspect about the Trump campaign's collusion with Russians that all that is true, that it's still a mistake for the Democrats to focus on this. What the Democrats need to focus on, the argument goes, is the real reasons they lost the election and what it's going to take to win back the, those uh, white working class uh, men in you know, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, and a lot of them in Minnesota. And the Democrats should be talking about a big infrastructure program, about health care for all, about free college. Um, and not focus so much on Russian hacking. What, what do you think about that argument? I think you can uh, chew gum and walk at the same time, and I actually do agree that the uh, intelligence committees in both the House and the Senate should be focused on what happened uh, in terms of the Russian hacking and uh, working on and, and what we can do to prevent it from happening again. I think that, and we have Robert Mueller, who I think is the right guy as a special prosecutor. And let him go. He'll go where the facts take him. And uh, so we, we have that in place, uh, I guess, thanks to me. So uh, um, so I agree with I agree with that. We should be really speaking to those people um, who have, um, you know, I think uh, legitimate beefs with, with with life for the last 40 years, the squeeze on the middle class, um, the corporate, you know, um, a capture of um, of the courts um, of I mean the Trump election didn't help on any of these scores. Yeah. You saw that you know the people going to be most hurt by the Senate health care bill and the House health care bill would, would be people in um, who, the very people who voted for Trump or a lot of those people. Mm-hmm. But they have reasons to distrust. Uh, the government, and I think we have to pay attention to that. You know, they um, think that big government is self-serving, and there's that's not untrue in in many ways. And Sheldon Whitehouse uh, has written a great book called Captured, and it basically talks about you know how they uh, Citizens United means that they've captured um, the campaign finance and our election system and. Uh, uh, they appoint uh, justices who um, allowed that and who make it impossible for people to get into a courtroom because of mandatory arbitration mm-hmm. and that they capture regulatory agencies and because of the revolving door where you go from regulatory agency into a private company and get paid big bucks. And, and, and the idea that people distrust in Trump country, distrust big government. The idea that like to scoff at that is is just wrong, and that's I think why there was overlap between Bernie and and Trump, uh, and why there are people who voted for me and who voted for Trump. So uh, no, I, I agree with you. I think one of the things we have to do is go to go to those people and listen. I think listening is a good idea for a politician. Of course, we're all preoccupied with uh, health care bill, uh, what's going to happen in the Senate, what's going to happen in the country. Do you think it's time? Do you think we're moving towards a single-payer system or something like Medicare for all? You know, I talked about health care. I have a chapter yeah. on, on health care, and I talked about 
what was going, uh, what the approach was in 2009, and there were some of us who were for single payer, and Bernie was leading that. And but I, I mentioned that we had you had to get 60 votes, and we were about 50 votes short. <laughs> and so what we were trying to do is. My opponent, Norm Coleman, at the time would say, we have the best health care system in the world in the United States, and the proof of it is we have the Mayo Clinic here in Minnesota. And I point out the, the Mayo Clinic isn't a health care system. It's a hospital and clinic. And, and um, T.R. Reid wrote a book on, on all the health care systems in the world and basically said, we, in the United States, we don't have a healthcare system, we have lots of systems. If you're in Medicare, you're in the Canadian system. If you're uh, you know, in the military, if you're in the VA, you're in the British system, you're in socialized medicine. If you are getting through your employer, you're in the German system that Bismarck started. <laughs> if you don't have insurance, you're in the Cambodian system. And what ACA tried to do is get people in the Cambodian system into one of the others, either in the Canadian or into the uh, German system, and succeeded to a great extent in doing that. What we need to do, I'm hoping this bill goes down. I've been doing everything I can to fight uh, the Senate bill and the House bill. Uh, Minnesotans in, in rural Minnesota don't like this bill. Uh, 17% of Americans support the, this Senate bill. That's the exact number of Americans who have said they have seen a ghost. And uh, they don't like it for a reason, which is that this is taking health care away from people who need it. People on Medicaid generally are working, are working people. There's some people who are disabled. There are people who are in nursing homes. More than about 60-some percent, 64%, I think, of people in nursing homes have that paid for by Medicaid. Uh, half the births are paid in the country, Medicaid, and these rural hospitals really, really <clears throat> uh, have benefited from the extent, uh, expansion of Medicaid and um, would be terribly hurt by all the uncompensated care that would happen, uh, come from all these people who would become uninsured because of this bill and would go to the emergency room. Yeah. And you'd see these hospitals have to... Uh, either lay off a lot of people. Very often they're the largest employer in a county. Mm -hmm. uh, would have a terrible economic impact on the county, and sometimes they would close because of this. So, there, this is, so hopefully we will, if this uh, doesn't go through, I hope that we can work in regular order, go through the committee process to shore up the exchanges. Uh, to um, I would love a public option. Uh, you would love a public option. Yeah, I was for a public option. Again, we needed sixty votes, and you know we had, we were short on that. We had a few demographing. Mean, Harry Reid had sixty, <laughs> mm -hmm. so everyone had a veto. Unfortunately, yeah. uh, at one point we were going to lower uh, Medicare to fifty-five, and uh, that would have been very good. Uh, and Joe Lieberman kind of squashed that because mm. you needed every member of the caucus. So uh, I hope we do a bipartisan effort to to fix uh, the things that are not working right now in, in our health care system. And that means the exchanges, also pharmaceutical costs, which I have a very comprehensive bill to address. Last question. 
you're extremely successful as a book author. I found a web page that shows you have sold more books than anyone in the Senate. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I, uh, there are good books from senators, but by and large, the uh, political memoir is not the most exciting um, genre that publishing has produced. Only a few people in politics have sold more books than you. I just want to mention a couple of them. Uh, the Audacity of Hope, number one bestseller, mm-hmm. author went on to become president. Sure. Art of the Deal, huge number one bestseller, author went on to become president. And Tony Schwartz is president? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, Al Franken, giant of the Senate, number one bestseller. You see where I'm going with this. Yeah, this is 2020. I've been very flattered uh, in this book tour. People have been saying, uh, you know, I, look, I uh, I think because ever president should really, really, really want to be president. I think I've I've seen the uh, the presidency closer up as a senator than I thought I would see as, a, as when I was a comedian, <laughs> and uh, it's a, an incredibly uh, difficult job. Uh, tremendous pressure, and I, you know, people say, "Well, you'd be better than Donald Trump," and I go, "Well, yeah, but that's <laughs> that's no reason that someone should be president." And they like the book, or they like what I've been doing uh, in the Senate, and it's very, very flattering. But uh, uh, certainly, I'm not uh, considering that. The book is Al Franken, Giant of the Senate. The author is Al Franken. Senator Franken, thanks for talking with us today. Oh, this has been a great pleasure. It's been a big week for news about the Trump campaign's collusion with Russia, probably the biggest yet. For comment, we turn to Joan Walsh. She's a political analyst on MSNBC. She wrote the book, What's the Matter with White People? Finding Our Way in the Next America. And she's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. We reached her today in New York City. Joan, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, and who knows what Wednesday and Thursday will bring. But at this point, fill us in on what we know about Donald Trump Jr. meeting with that Russian lawyer during the campaign, a person with Kremlin connections who said she had compromising information about Hillary Clinton. Oh, we know so much and so little in the sense that they they tell the truth about some of it, but then we're not sure if they're telling the truth about other parts of it. But let me try to walk you through it. Uh, You know, on Saturday, the New York Times just revealed the details of of a meeting with this woman, uh, Natalia Veselnitskaya, who has been uh, close to Putin's uh, friends and Trump Jr. tried to argue at first, he keeps changing his story, that they only talked about Russian adoption policy and he didn't really have time to deal with it. Well, then the next day, the Times admitted, or the Times, excuse me, the Times revealed that the meeting was taken because this woman promised incriminating dirt uh, gathered by the Russian government on Hillary Clinton. Then Donnie changed his story and it was completely incoherent. And finally, on Tuesday, The Times did report that they reported on the actual wording of an email from a Trump crony with major Putin ties. 
So the email that Don Jr. released says that he has offered a meeting where a woman who is, quote, a Russian government attorney, close quote, right. has documents that, quote, would incriminate Hillary, close quote. And most amazing of all, the, the email that Don Jr. released said this, quote, is part of Russia and its government support for Mr. Trump, close quote. Just part. Just, just part, part of it, you know. Just part. We've been told for months by everyone connected with the Trump White House and the Trump campaign that there's no evidence of collusion. I think we're done with that now. I think we're done with that. And, and you know, also the claims that if there was, they didn't know about it. We're done with that. I, it, it's really, I mean, I just keep thinking that even while we're on the phone, more shoes will drop because that's yeah. been the nature of this story in over the last two and a half days. So we're definitely in a place where a lot of people think laws have been broken, as in foreign nationals are not allowed to contribute anything of value, quote, anything of value, not just money, uh, but anything of value. And presumably dirty info about Clinton would be of value. And Americans are not allowed to accept it. So that law seems to have been broken, although who can prosecute, who would prosecute? There are a lot of questions about that. But I feel like this is just the beginning of a lot of a torrent of revelations coming mainly from within the Trump White House, because the really interesting thing about the Times revelations on, I think it was Sunday night, I'm losing track, was that they were sourced to three White House advisors and two government officials who were familiar with the documents. Three White House advisors, John, what does that even mean? I mean, somebody's trying to get Junior to be the fall guy. I, I don't I don't know. I shouldn't I shouldn't go out on a limb. But it's crazy right now. Don Jr. has said that what happened at this meeting was that it quickly became clear that the Russian woman attorney had no information about Hillary and that it came to nothing and therefore nothing of value was exchanged, is the implication, and there's nothing wrong with a meeting where nothing happened. Uh, what do you say to that defense? He, he at least tried to solicit something of value yes, from the a foreign keyword, national. The keyword here is intent. His intent. Right. He intended to. <laughs> Do you believe uh, the people who say that Donald Trump himself had no knowledge of this meeting? Everything I know of young Don Jr. and his closeness to his father and his desire for his father's approval and his father's uh, closeness to these two Putin connected Russian moguls who were promising the help, uh, the Agalarovs, tells me that Donnie would run over from the next office and say to daddy, hey, I've got, look at, look at what our friends are provide, are offering us. I've got a meeting today. I just don't believe that that didn't happen. And the same day that, you know, this meeting occurred, I guess it was June 9th, 2016, a little over a year ago, the very same day, like an hour after the meeting happened, Donald Trump himself, senior, started tweeting for the first time about Hillary Clinton's missing 33,000 emails and how incriminating they were going to be. Now, you know, let's stop there and admit 
nothing in this email thread talked about those emails or, or talked about any of the actual things that the intelligence community believes the Russian did the Russians did you're saying we despite all the incredible revelations of the last few days the most devastating of the entire year that we still do not really know what happened at that meeting between the Russian lawyer and Don Jr. Jared and Paul Manafort. Is that right? We still don't really yeah, know? We absolutely do not know. I mean, you know, it's going to be interesting if Bob Mueller, the independent counsel, gets some some other people to talk. I mean, the folks we haven't heard from are Jared Kushner and Paul Manafort. You used the phrase, another shoe is likely to drop. I just want to note that John McCain commented on <laughs> Tuesday morning, more shoes will drop, he said, on this centipede. Yeah, that means 100 shoes. <laughs> Senator McCain delivers the best sound bites, and God bless him, but Republicans are doing nothing about this. And, you know, the, the really, the you know, the most disliked senator, according to our friend, Senator Al Franken, yes. is Ted Cruz. And yes. Ted Cruz, even though Donald Trump insulted both his wife and his father, has emerged as one of his biggest defenders, calling this a, quote, nothing burger and saying no one in Texas cares at all about it. I mean, that's pretty awful. All of this is indication that the Trump campaign has lied repeatedly about what they knew and also what they did. But you need Republican leaders who want to stand up and say, this is illegal, immoral, politically wrong. It rises to high crimes and misdemeanors, and, and they're not going to anytime soon. I don't know what it's going to take, but that's what's really depressing about this. We can raise a ruckus, and we should raise a ruckus. We shouldn't say because... Republicans won't do anything right now. We're not going to agitate. But it is pretty clear to me watching watching the reaction of Democrats and then watching the reaction of congressional Republicans today that, oh, it's going to it's going to take so much more than this, John, for them to stand up. Joan Walsh, reader at thenation.com, where she asks the question, did Don Jr. just become the fall guy? Joan, obviously we're going to keep coming back to you on this as the other shoes on the centipede continue to drop. <laughs> but thanks for talking with us today. You're welcome. It's not easy to turn away from all the breaking news about Don Trump Jr.'s meeting with that Russian to get dirt on Hillary. But the big picture is this. If the Democrats are going to retake the House next November, they need to be able to vote. And the Trump administration's commission on what they call electoral integrity is working to make that a lot harder. For an update, we turn to our man on voting rights, Ari Berman. He wrote the award-winning book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. He's been a senior contributing writer at The Nation magazine and a fellow at The Nation Institute. He also writes for The New York Times, Rolling Stone, The Guardian. He's a frequent guest and commentator on MSNBC and NPR. Ari, welcome back. Hey, John. Good to talk to you again. Well, let's start with what we've learned about Russian hacking of voting in the election last November. That's the subject of your cover story in the new issue of The Nation magazine. What have we learned? Well, there's still 
a lot we don't know, uh, but what intelligence agency officials have testified is that uh, Russian hackers attempted to infiltrate and targeted uh, 21 different states' election systems. So again, we don't know exactly what that means. We don't know uh, if they uh, got into uh, voter registration rolls. We don't know uh, what, if anything, they were able to do with voting machines. Two states have been identified where hackers uh, were successful. One was Illinois, where they were able to steal the records of 90,000 registered voters, and the other was Arizona, where they attempted to breach the registration list via a county-level infiltration. So I would like us to be able to know more about this. I would like there to be more declassified information about what actually happened. But clearly, this is just the first step, I think, in hackers becoming more acquainted with the American election system and preparing. What I'm worried about is that they're now trying to prepare for an even broader attack on our election systems in 2018 or 2020. Hacking into 21 different states' election systems, how does this compare with hacking John Podesta's emails or the (laughs) DNC emails, which, of course, were posted on WikiLeaks at that key moment in the campaign? Well, I view the hacking of election systems as a far more serious threat because emails are one thing. Uh, Things that people use to register to vote or to vote on get to the heart of America's election process and and whether uh, Russia did it this time or someone else does it another time. What my piece looked at is just how vulnerable our system is, how uh, insecure our voting systems and and other stuff uh, are, how easy it would be for hackers to try to access registration data, how they could change voters' information uh, to screw up the rolls in any number of ways. For example, like in states where, with strict voter ID laws, where your driver's license or some other photo identification has to match on your name on your voting rolls almost exactly, if you just changed one or two letters in everyone's name, that could prevent thousands of people from being able to cast a regular ballot. So these are the kind of nightmare scenarios that, that I'm worried about and that a lot of other people who study American elections systems are worried about as well. Well, the little that we know about this is the statement from, includes a statement from our intelligence agencies saying no votes were changed or altered by Russian hacking. Do you think that's true? Well, there's no evidence that any votes were changed, but unfortunately there's, there's not any evidence to suggest that they weren't changed either, um, meaning that DHS said they had not conducted a forensic analysis of any of the voting machines. I asked multiple election experts how confident they were that no votes were changed, and what, I, what they told me was it's impossible to know, which isn't to suggest a conspiracy theory that somehow all of these voting machines were hacked. What it is to say is that 14 states vote on electronic voting machines with no paper trails. So if there was a hacking, it might be very difficult to detect it. Meanwhile, the other 36 states have some sort of paper backup, but they don't check that paper regularly enough to compare the results. So we have some basic protections in place, but if we were really targeted with a massive cyber attack on our election systems, we are very, very vulnerable. And given what happened in 2016, it's extremely disturbing we haven't done anything to protect our election system going forward. Are we sure that the Russians did it? Trump has tweeted, quote, I strongly pressed President Putin twice about Russian meddling in our election. He vehemently denied it, close quote. Your comment. Well, if Putin, <laughs> that's like asking a mobster if he killed someone. You know, he's probably not going to admit it in, in, unless he absolutely has to. 
I have no reason to dispute what the intelligence community is saying about this. Their findings are unanimous that it was the Russians. Meanwhile, intelligence officials going to Capitol Hill and saying it was the Russians while they're serving in the Trump administration puts them at great personal risk. So people from the FBI, people from the Department of Homeland Security, people from the CIA who are currently serving in the government, when they're testifying that it was Russia that hacked us, that's only going to make Trump angry. So if anything, they have a built-in incentive to say it wasn't the Russians. And they're saying quite the opposite. You said that one of the things that uh, an adversary could do would be to change the voter registration rolls to, to in states where strict ideas required that would prevent thousands of people from voting. Would it be possible or what would it take to prevent Russians from changing the actual results on the machines? How hard would it be for us to prevent that from happening? It would be harder, but not impossible to access the machine. So the registration lists sit on a bunch of different computers. So it's easier to hack the registration list. The machines themselves are not connected to the internet. But what I learned reporting this piece is that when the machines are programmed, because you have to program every machine, they often are connected to computers that are connected to the internet. So that's how you'd have to do it. Or you'd have to physically get access to some of these machines. So it's more difficult, but certainly not impossible for someone who has a lot of technological sophistication with hacks. I I read that uh, 42 states use Windows XP for their (laughs) voting system. I think we were supposed to stop using Windows Windows XP in 2014. (laughs) Have I I got that right? Well, so... a bunch of voting voting machines were bought after the 2000 election in Florida, after the hanging chat and butterfly ballot debacle. And these machines were supposed to last for 10 to 15 years, meaning they have all basically expired by now. Um, but states haven't spent money to buy new voting machines. And this is extremely problematic because, first off, the old software is totally primitive. It's, it's easier to hack. And second thing, I mean, it could just melt down regardless of a hack. Um, if machines break down, that leads to long lines, that leads to skepticism about the results, that leads to difficulty counting the results accurately. We saw this in Detroit in the last election where tons of machines just broke down. Like a third of the city had broken down voting machines um, and it led to big problems on election day. So I think it's absolutely insane that we're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on a quote-unquote election integrity commission when there's no evidence of voter fraud whatsoever in American elections, but we can't even get a few million dollars to the states to upgrade their voting machines and create a paper trail. I mean, it's totally unconscionable. Yeah, the figures that I saw in the New York Times was replacing all the uh, old electronic voting machines that produce no paper trail. That's 14 states, according to the New York Times, with new machines that would have auditable returns would cost something like $130 million, maybe as much as $400 million. Uh, Is that a lot in terms of the federal budget? Um, it's not a lot in terms of the federal budget, and it's certainly not a lot in, when our elections cost billions of dollars, uh, and we don't even have confidence that the machines that are counted in will work accurately or, or will not be hacked. So to me, this needs to be the, the number one priority. Well, luckily for us, we already have a presidential commission charged with <laughs> investigating election integrity and recommending ways to improve it. This is the president's commission headed by Mike Pence and Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach. What's your assessment of their work at this point? 
Well, my assessment of the commission is that it's totally pointless. There's absolutely no evidence to suggest that millions of people voted illegally, as Donald Trump tweeted, and that's the only reason we have this commission in the first place, and it's focused on the absolutely wrong problem. We should be looking at election hacking and the vulnerability of our voting system, and also at voter suppression laws all across the country that made it harder to vote in 2016 and their impact on voter participation. We've had many, many, many studies now of voter fraud. It's an extremely rare problem in American elections. To the extent that it occurs, it's regularly caught. Uh, election officials themselves will say this is not a big problem. We have much, much, much bigger problems. And my fear is that the Election Integrity Commission is going to spread this gigantic lie about voter fraud, which is that millions of people voted illegally, or at least a very large number of people voted illegally. And then because of that, we have to put in place all of these steps that make it more difficult to vote, all of these new restrictions that make it more difficult to vote, while doing nothing to actually make our election system more secure and actually preserve the integrity of our election systems, which many people are doubting after the 2016 election. Ari Berman, we've always ended our segments with Ari saying, read him at thenation.com. And indeed, he's on the cover of the magazine and he has a piece at thenation.com uh, this week. But this is the last time we'll be able to say read him at thenation.com on our podcast because Ari is moving to Mother Jones. Uh, Ari, we will miss you. Thanks for all your great work here and congratulations on the new job. Thanks, John. And never say never. I'm sure I'll talk to you again. Okay. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.